Anybody else want chips and salsa right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, we got charismatic here in the front with chips and salsa. Hey, it is good to have you here. Those of you in Skagit, glad you've joined us in Boca Raton. And those with the live stream, uh, good to have you. What a week we had. A soaking rain. The Friday night lights were on and the football has started and all the kids are back in school. Amen. And the parents said hallelujah. You know, if your kids are in school, there's a chance that maybe one of their teachers to try and kind of shake off the cobwebs from the summer and brush off the dust may have given your child an assignment with a one-page paper, right? What did you do last summer? And I was thinking, if I was given that assignment in one page, right, what did you do last summer, it would be an impossible task with the volumes and stuff that happened. And some of you say, I know what you did last summer, which sounds like a really bad slasher movie from the 90s. But my summer was absolutely amazing. And I will say again, I'm so grateful to this church, our staff, and our elder board that afforded me the, the privilege and the opportunity to take a three-month sabbatical. It was absolutely uh, fantastic. And many of you are aware that for at least half of those three months, my wife and I were out of the country, and the vast majority of that time was spent walking on the Camino de Santiago, which is the way of St. James. Now, when you talk about the Camino de Santiago, some of you are very familiar with it. You've read books on it. You know a lot about it. You've watched documentaries and such. Some of you are vaguely familiar with it just because of some things, maybe even with my uh, Facebook post over the summer. Some of you have no clue about it at all. So let me just give you a little bit of uh, history on this. It's an ancient pilgrimage that uh, people, um, it's been a, a Catholic tradition for over 1,100 years. Uh, people have been making their way to uh, Santiago in Spain, where uh, apparently, reportedly, the remains of St. James are, and they go there to visit these relics of the saint. Uh, so now, we're, we're familiar with St. James, James, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. They were fishermen. Jesus called them to follow him. They did. They were a part of his inner circle. He had his 12, but he had these three, Mount of Transfiguration, a couple different places where he would take these three aside, and they were a part of that. James and John, these brothers, their dad's name is Zebedee, and for some reason, something they said, something they did, a personality temperament, I don't know, but Jesus gave them a nickname, and I thought, how cool would it be for Jesus to give you a nickname? I've had a lot of people give me nicknames, but I would love for Jesus to give me a nickname, and he gives them this nickname, Sons of Thunder, which just leaves this big question mark, what was that all about? And the Bible doesn't say anything about what that's about. There's some hints and maybe some different things. Someday in heaven, we'll figure it out and, and we'll thunder on with them. But anyway, so that's James. Now, this, this pilgrimage, the one that we talk, uh, took is called the Camino Francais, and it, it goes across Spain. It starts over here at the southern border of France in, in a little town called saint jean Port, up over the Pyrenees Mountains, and then across. And we walked 500 miles to Santiago de Compostela. We were there for a couple days, and then we walked the additional 50 miles down to uh, Finisterra, which is known as the world's end or the end of the earth. <clears throat> now, this whole thing starts back, if you think about this, when Jesus had come back from the dead, he was the resurrected Savior. He's getting ready to ascend to the Father, and he calls his disciples together, and he gives them what we refer to as the Great Commission, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We'll look at this a little bit more next week. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Now, we look at that and say, well, yeah, go and make disciples of all nations. Maybe Jesus was just saying, you know, don't worry about boundaries. Just kind of go. And, and maybe it was a philosophical. We're hoping that someday this might be a global endeavor, whatever. But the disciples took it as a literal instruction to go to all nations. The one that we're most familiar with who actually wasn't here when this was spoken is the Apostle Paul, who was converted later. And we're familiar because Scripture outlines some of his missionary journeys that took him to nations outside of Israel. That his missionary journeys took him to what today would be modern-day Turkey, and to Greece, and to Italy. And we're, we're very familiar with that. What we're not familiar with is that there is reported uh, stories that some of the other disciples went to other nations as well. And this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy of what's church history and tradition and what's myth and what's legend and what's story that's developed. Not entirely sure, but Andrew, Andrew, the brother of Peter, is reported to have taken the gospel of Jesus Christ and gone up to the northwest towards the Black Sea. And some would report even as far as Kiev. Interesting thing, that Andrew is the patron saint of Ukraine, Russia, and Romania, probably because of this story that possibly he was the first one that took the gospel there. Thomas, St. Thomas, Doubting Thomas, bummer that that's his, his uh, moniker. Doubting Thomas takes the gospel of Jesus Christ to Syria and then on to India, and to this day, Thomas is the patron saint of India. There are some that believe that Matthew may have gone to Ethiopia, some to northern Africa. But with James, the story, the legend, the myth, whatever it is, is that James took the gospel of Jesus Christ to Spain, that he, that he sailed to Spain, and more specifically, to the northwest region of Spain called Galicia, is the region there, and even more specifically, to a town called Finisterra. Which is interesting because Finisterra was like a stronghold of, of Druid ritual and, um, and, and, and initiation. But that would also make sense. Why not go to the darkest spiritual place to bring the light of Jesus Christ? Now here's what's interesting. If this is true, that he went there, he goes to Finisterra. The word Finisterra, finis, like finish, like end, like complete, terra, like terra firma, like dirt, like earth. That's why it was considered the end of the world, the end of the earth, because that was the westernmost point. This was before 1492, and no one had sailed the ocean blue. No one knew what was out there. This was the end of the earth. Now, if it's true, James would have been there when Jesus is preparing to ascend to heaven, and he says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I can just imagine James sitting over there going, I'm going to Europe. That's it, man. I'm going to the ends of the earth. I know the end of the world as we know it. I'm going to Finisterre. So he reportedly goes to Spain where he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ with minimal results. Seven or eight converts. So he returns to Israel, sails back, and then he goes to Jerusalem. And we do know that in somewhere in the year between 42 and 44, James was the first of the 12 to be martyred. His head was cut off. Now the story now reports that his disciples came pick up his remains, and in this sensational story, sail back to Finisterre where they bury his bones, and then later they're moved to what is now called Santiago de Compostela, that they are there, that that's where the bones lie, and that's where the relics of the St. James are, now in this big cathedral. 
So the first written record of anyone making a, a pilgrimage is from 950. A bishop made his pilgrimage to Santiago, and, and that's where we kind of start seeing this come onto the scene. The whole concept of making pilgrimages in the Middle Ages was nothing um, un, unusual. Many people did that. Part of it was there was this idea of great importance and prestige if you could visit the relics of the saints. And there were many reports of miracles taking place, of healings taking place, of, of bizarre things happening. And to go there, it was also an act of piety, an act of, of your dedication and, and sacrifice. And there were three primary pilgrimages. One was to Jerusalem, that makes sense. One was to Rome, and one was Santiago. Jerusalem is always in turmoil during these seasons of, of who, who rules it, the Muslims or the Christians, and there's wars and there's fighting. Very dangerous to go to Jerusalem. It's always been that way. Rome was another center for, for this, but usually it was, it was a sailing uh, pilgrimage, and it cost a lot of money. Santiago, however, from pretty much anywhere in Europe, you could walk to Santiago. It'll take you some time, but you can walk and you can do it fairly safely and fairly inexpensively. In fact, many of the pilgrims would go with little or no money, just trusting God, stepping out in faith, hoping that the, the, the gracious hospitality of the churches and the monasteries and the farmers and the locals would provide for them as they went on this, on this journey. And because of the, the expense of Rome and because of the danger of Jerusalem, Santiago became the primary pilgrimage. And in the 11th and 12th century, it is reported that up to 1,000 people a day were pouring into Santiago to receive their Compostela, their, their little certificate that they had made this journey. It's huge, huge uh, throughout the Middle Ages in, in Christianity, in the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church. And then things happened over the years. And it just, we'll fast forward through all that. The Enlightenment, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution, secularization, and it all just kind of faded away to the point where, in recent history, in the 1980s, less than 3,000 people a year were making this pilgrimage. And then something happened. In the year 2000, just under 50,000 people made this pilgrimage. And then Emilio Estevez comes along with his dad, Martin Sheen, and they made a movie called The Way. And there was great, and there were other movies, and then there were books written. And it kind of grew in popularity to where that last year, 2017, over 300,000 people made the pilgrimage and got their, their Compostelo in, in Santiago. So my wife and I, not being devout Catholic, but having watched the movie, uh, decided, <laughs> let's do this. Let's, let's walk this thing. And I'm telling you, this experience of walking the Camino de Santiago uh, I, I sum it up in one word, amazing, because I don't use the E word. There's only one word. It's amazing. The E word, by the way, is epic. I don't use that word. It was amazing on so many levels, on so many fronts. First of all, who knew that Spain was such a beautiful country? It was fascinating. It was beautiful. And the people were warm and hospitable and welcoming and just fantastic. And then there was the, the whole historical side of things. I mean, the history of Spain makes you realize that, that America is this young, baby, teenage country and the history of all this stuff with the, the Moors and the Muslims and the Franks and the, and the Christians and the Vandals and the Visigoths and all of this stuff that happened throughout history and, and Charlemagne and the Knights Templar and, 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 and uh, Napoleon and all this is happening. 
And it was fascinating on a relational front because we would meet people not only from all over the United States, but from all over the world who were walking this Camino as well. And we'd walk with them for a while, we'd have dinner with them, stop and have a cup of coffee with them and to hear their story and where they're coming from and their reasons for walking it and the relationships that were built there. And then on a, on a, on a church history level, I mean, I, I had just just come off of this celebration of being the senior pastor here for 25 years. And people would say, man, that's a long time to be a, a pastor, 25 years and all this stuff. And then I went in and I saw this church history and I'm thinking, that's like a nanosecond in light of church history. And I would see all the things that happened and, and I had this growing appreciation for our Roman Catholic roots. For in the midst of all the humanness and all the mistakes, the impact that the Roman Catholic Church had not only on the spread of the gospel and Christianity, but even on the civilization of, of, of Western civilization, the impact amidst the, the mess, the impact was phenomenal. And I grew to really appreciate where we came from, what we came out of, what our roots and our foundation is a part of. And as I was in this time of contemplating my life, I turned 55 while we were on the Camino. I just celebrated 25 years here. And then looking in this backdrop of, of the church history, I, would, I was just overwhelmed in my own reflection. And then I would read these things. I would experience these things. I would see this stuff. And there would be these thoughts and these questions and these ideas and these insights. And then I would connect them with Scripture. And I'm wondering if that all kind of plays together. And then I'd think about us here. And, and every day, because I had no cell service and I didn't have an email and, and just at night I had, had uh, internet. But, but all day, I had time to just think and to contemplate and to muse and, and, and to mull these things over my mind. And on June 11th, less than two weeks into this Camino experience, June 11th, I wrote in my journal, I wonder, I wonder if September I could do a sermon series with some of these thoughts that I'm having connected with scripture and applying to us. And I wonder if we could call it Camino de Iglesia, which means the way of the church the way that the church has always operated, the way the church should operate, the way the church should operate according to the direction of the way that Jesus has called us to. And I wrote in my notes in my journal that day, man, we could have like these, these sublines, like ancient pathway, timeless truth, today's church, that I could take some of my experiences, some of my insights from this ancient pathway called the Camino de Santiago, tie it in with the timeless truth of God's word and, and the gospel, and then apply it to us in our context at Cornwall Church and even us as individuals, as followers of Christ. So we're doing that. <laughs> so for the next four weeks, I'm going to write my paper, what I did last summer. Now, here's what I really hope not to do. I remember as a kid when people would come home from vacation and set up the slide projector. That was so boring. I hope not to do that. What I hope to do is take some of this stuff and synthesize it down in a way that applies to all of us and collectively and individually. And I've really struggled, honestly, really struggled as I've read back through my journal. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, I forgot about that. Oh, that was so cool. And, and to try to really synthesize into four different topics some experiences that I had. And, uh, and, then, and then I would see stories like, oh, I want to tell that story, but it has nothing to do with anything. So I'm going to really not do those things. And, and then to put all that. So today we're going to get started with this. And I want to say right up front as another kind of a preemptive strike. Hear me out. I know, because some of you, you, if you just listened to this sermon, you'd think, oh, his theology is way off. You try to correct me. I know that the church is not a building. I know that, okay? Because there's some stuff we're going to use metaphorically here. I know, I know, I know that the church is not a building. Are we okay with that? 
With that said, on May 30th, um, we had been walking for three or four days. We just spent uh, the night in Pamplona, which was the largest city on the Camino, and we would come back to that in a month and a half to run with the bulls. What a story there. But we were leaving Pamplona, and um, on the southwest side, we were a couple miles out of town, and we were just walking through these incredible rolling uh, hills of, of wheat. And I had read that it was, it was in these fields, in these hills, that uh, Charlemagne and his uh, Christian forces defeated the Muslim army in the 8th century. And just walking through and thinking through all this, and it was so peaceful and so serene, and yet thinking, you know, years ago there was a horrible battle here and bloodshed in the name of the church, in the name of Christ, how awful and uh, atrocious that must have been, and yet all of these things put the power back into the Christians and away from the Muslims, all that takes place. And we're about five miles outside of Pamplona, and I'm just looking around, and I looked back, and I saw this. I saw this picture of, of this old church that was, you know, empty and dark, and there was a, another building over here, and, and there was something about this in the setting, in the context, something about it just, it just grabbed me. I was like, you know, I was like, Dor, ch check this out. And, I, and this was my phone, so that's why, and it's way off, so I'm zooming in with my phone, so the pictures are horrible, but there was something about that. And, and for the next mile or two, I just kept looking back, because there was something, it was like, I don't know what it was, but I was just drawn to this thing. And I found out later that this church and this little uh, building, there was a complex, there had been a palace, there was a church, and there was a hospital uh, in the 16th century, and the whole place was called uh, Gwendolyn. Now, when we say hospital in this context, it's different than what we think of as hospital. In this context, it would be more like a ministry center where hospitality was extended, where there was people being hospitable to others, where people could stay for free, where they could be fed, where their uh, physical needs could be taken care of, where they could receive a medical attention. It, it, was a, it was a ministry center to go and be and to serve and to bless others. And as I was walking along and thinking about all of this, I was thinking of how at one time, this was a thriving community of Christ followers. And at one time in this place, People would come together on a weekly basis, probably more than once a week, maybe every single day, and they would lift up their voices in singing together collectively, lifting up the name of Jesus and praising God. They would look into God's word and hear his word. They would pray their prayers. They would confess their sins. They would celebrate the Eucharist. They would baptize their children. They would marry young couples. They would bury their loved ones. All this was going on in this church, and it wasn't just there. But they would go and be after that, and they would go into this building where they would minister, and they would bless, and they would serve. And I was just thinking about how it was, and what it was like, and what once was this thriving community that just is people being the people of God, and now it's like a ghost town. It's like this shell that's empty and dark, and there's nothing. And I began to wonder, what happened? How did that happen? When did that happen? And then it really turned on me. And it really bothered me. What if someday that was a picture of Cornwall? And I began to just think about these things and, and contemplate how is it that we can pass the faith on to the next generation, pass the baton? How is it that we can continue to be relevant? How is it that we can continue to, to be the, the living, breathing church, the body of Christ in our world? Uh, journaling that things. The next day, as we were walking, we came up with a lady named Sally. We had seen and met Sally before on the trail. Sally is a universalist chaplain who ministers to cancer patients 
in Ohio, and while our theologies are, are pretty diametrically opposed in some ways, she did uh, admire Jesus and, and lift up his name. So we were talking, and I was asking Sally about this. I said, you know, here's my thoughts, and this thing really gripped me, and I just like was just pulled in by this thing, and, and this fear as a pastor that that would maybe someday happen to this body that I'm a part of, and how do we pass it on to the next generation? And Sally said something. She said, Bob, could it be that maybe God has seasons for churches and that maybe it's okay for them to die? I thought, hmm, I'm not sure about that, but I'll think about it. So I wrote that in my journal. Just kind of let that run. A couple days later, we were leaving a little town called Los Arcos, and on the way out of Los Arcos, I had read in the little guidebook that there was a cemetery just off of the path. And so I said, Dorian, I really want to go see this cemetery. It's just off the path. I mean, really. I mean, some of these were way off the path, and we didn't speak on some of those days. But this one was <laughs> just off the path. And so she agreed. And so we were going up out of Los Arcos, went across this, this river, this beautiful bridge, and then up this hill. And I said, oh, here's the cemetery. And we turned off, and, and there was a cemetery, and there was a, a kind of a, a stone above the gate or the portal to the cemetery, almost like this voice from the crypt, this voice from the grave. And this is what the stone was, is here. And now, I don't speak Spanish. I don't read Spanish. But the book had given us a, a rough translation of this. Some of you are going to correct me, I know. But this, and I'm gullible. If the book says it, I'm going to believe it, I guess. So, in essence, this is what it says this voice from the grave, this voice from the cemetery, this voice from the crypt says, in essence, as you are, I once was. As I am, you will be. Ooh. That's like deep. That's like something you would read standing in line waiting for the haunted mansion at Disneyland. This voice from the grave saying, as you are, alive, vibrant, you think this will never end. I was there once. As I am in the dark, cold grave, you will be. Well, it really reminds us of our own mortality, and it's not a bad thing to think about. Okay, our life on this earth does not go on forever. We don't have a you know, practice run and a trial. This is it, and there will come a day when it comes to the end. And so I was thinking about that. My mind went back to Gwendolyn, this this. This church that was empty, the shell, and almost like, what if this church, that picture I showed you, what if this church was like this, this ecclesiastical, this church tombstone with this voice that cries out, as you are, I once was, as I am, you will be. I was once a thriving community of Christ followers, doing ministry, making an impact, having, making a difference, you know, glorifying God. I was like you once. And as I am now, in ruins, a memory of the past, so you will be. Kind of a frightening thought. You know, when Jesus addressed the churches in Revelation, the seven churches of Asia, he points out to, to these churches where they kind of strayed off. And when he speaks to the church in Sardis, he says these words, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead Wake up, strengthen what, re what remains and is about to die. Our church, come on. Yeah, there was all the stuff that you used to do and that reputation precedes you and everyone thinks that's what you're all about, but you're dead for your own sake. Don't live on the reputation of the past. Wake up, become alive for your sake, for Christ's sake. 
for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of this world. Don't be okay with just being a memory from the past. Come alive. Be who Jesus called and created you to be. You know, there's a, a word that I, I used uh, last week. It's an old school word, but I, I really think it's so important. And it's that word consecrate, which means, again, to set apart for the Lord's purposes. You know, last week we talked about the showbread, how it was consecrated in the tent and the tabernacle, how it was consecrated in Israel as a nation that was consecrated. It was all set apart for God's purposes. And the church of Jesus Christ is consecrated. We are set apart for God's purposes. Those purposes are to bring restoration to a broken world. To bring redemption to a world that is, that is lost, to, to reclaim which was stole, that which was stolen, and, and, and to have this reconciliation of the separation between God and the ones that he loves most and the ones that he created. That's the role of the church. Listen, there's a lot of good things the church can do, but if we ever lose sight of what we're really about, the Lord's purposes, we're just another social agency. And so I was, I was thinking about all of this. I was thinking about how the church is consecrated to do the Lord's purpose. Think about all of these different pieces of, of the, the, the voice from the grave and, and this, this church that was just empty. And then a couple days later, we were in a little town called uh, Fromista. Fromista is a, a dying town with a declining population of 840. In this tiny little town, there's a disproportionate number of these large ancient churches. There's three of them. One of them, the church that it's best known for, is this church. And it's really a relatively small church um, but it took about 15 to 20 years to build. We may talk about that in two weeks. It's one of the best examples of Romanesque architecture of churches in Spain remaining. And we'll talk about that in two weeks, the difference between Romanesque and Gothic uh, architecture and design. But one of the things that, that is unique about this church is that all around it, there are 300 of these, these corbels. These, they look like little dots. They're these braces that hold up the, you know, the upper levels and the, the roof. But all 300 of them have been individually carved with a different face or a different animal or a different mythical figure. All of them. I thought, man, I really want, I really want to see this. So I went there and, and uh, toured it. And it's just some, some amazing stuff in there with the architecture and the art and, and all of that. This church is uh, Iglesia de uh, San Martin from the 11th century. And the Catholic Church consecrated it in 1066. So when it was built in 1066, they consecrated it. They set it apart for the Lord's purposes, that this is where people would come and celebrate together as the body of Christ, where they would hear the word of God, where they would worship, where they would celebrate the sacraments, where, where they would pray that, that the things of God would take place here. It fell into disrepair, and about 150 years, maybe 200 years ago, some things changed with this church. And in the guidebook, I read this, and it said this, it was deconsecrated, painstakingly restored, and declared a national monument all in the same breath. And now there are busloads of these people that come in which have turned it into a must-see tourist site. Sadder words have never ever been spoken about a church than it's deconsecrated, it's a monument, and a tourist site. And then there was the understatement of all understatements that was at the end of this, because it's been deconsecrated, painfully restored, it is now this tourist site, it's a mon national monument, it says, and it appears to have lost something vital in the process. Well, you don't say. 
You take a church, the living, active church of Jesus Christ, you deconsecrate it, you restore it, you make it a monument and a tourist site, and something vital is lost. Yeah, the consecration is lost. The very purpose for it is lost. Its very life is gone. Its impact is no longer. You know, 11 years ago, my dad died. After he died, they painstakingly washed his body, combed whatever hair he had left, made up his face, put on clothes, and set him on a table, and we all went and looked at him. But something vital seems to have appeared to be lost. Yeah, he's dead. He's a corpse. It's not my dad anymore. And this is what happens to this church. And with all of this, I, I read that. I'm, I was just gripped by all this. And I wrote in my journal these words, when the movement becomes a monument, its impact is ineffectual. When the movement of God in his church becomes a museum, when it becomes a monument to the past of how it used to be, then the impact is ineffectual. The life has been sucked out of it. The purpose has been taken from it. It's gone. And I saw this over and over again. And then I thought about the timeless truth of Jesus Christ. When he addresses his followers, when he addresses his church, when he addresses his church that, by the way, had no building, had no chapel, had no basilica, had no cathedral. When he addresses them on a mountainside and he gives them this vision of who he sees them to be and these familiar words when he says, you are the light of the world. Notice he doesn't say, you are a light in the world, like just another good thing. Look at it. You are the light of the world. And that's setting the bar pretty high. So this is the purpose I have for you, to impact our world. That's why you exist. And then he goes on and he paints these two word pictures, one from their surrounding community and one from their very own homes. He says, like a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The church is not supposed to be over here cowered, just kind of staying together in its own little cloistered self, protecting itself and just barely trying to survive. No, 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 you're like a city on the top of a hill. Everyone can see it. It says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone, everyone in the house. That's what I want my church to be, that you would be this light that brings hope, that brings life, and not just to people in the church, not just to your little group, but to everyone, to the world, that you would influence, that you would impact that you would make a difference, even for people that don't believe, even for people who are anti-Christian, that you would be a blessing to them. And then just to make things abundantly clear, he brings it down so that they take it out of the philosophical and he applies it to their life. He says, in the same way, let your light shine. Now, we're not just talking about that church ought to. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's for us as a church. That's for us as Christ's followers. Now, what Christ has called us to is to influence, to impact, to bless, to serve, to make a difference in this world. Even to those, and maybe especially to those outside of the church. Uh, six or seven years ago, I was reading Scott McKnight's book, Jesus Creed, which, by the way, is a fantastic book. And in this book, he talks about Vincent Van Gogh. Many of us are familiar with Vincent Van Gogh, the artist. And uh, Van Gogh, what you may not be aware of, is that his father was a pastor 
And yet in his childhood, he felt like his father was distant and cold and unconnected. And Van Gogh's life was very troubled. As an adult, it was very troubled. Um, he had troubles uh, in relationships romantically. You know, the story, he cut off his ear and sent it to his girlfriend, which didn't work. Um, and, uh, and then the one woman that he loved, he asked her to marry, marry him, and she said, no, no, never, never, ever again. Basically, don't call me, I'll call you, and that's not going to ever happen. He had failures in his vocation where he sold one painting while he was alive, one painting only. And even in ministry, even in, in something far beyond, he longed to be a part of the ministry, he longed to be a priest, he longed to make a difference in the world, the church rejected him. He suffered with depression and mental illness, and when he was 35 years old, he checked himself into an insane asylum and eventually, tragically, took his own life. McKnight points out that in the midst of all of his depression and all of his mental illness and all of his despair, when he would paint, he would often use the color yellow that would portray God's love and God's warmth and God's hope. Now, for most of us who are not art critics or art students, we're really only familiar with two of his paintings. I'm only familiar, really, with two of his paintings. One is a self-portrait where he's got his head wrapped because his ear's gone. And the other one is, is Starry, Starry Night. Very, very famous. Probably his most famous painting. And so some would interpret that as Van Gogh is painting this, he recognizes that there is a God who is loving. There is a God who is warm. There is a God with hope. But it's like stars. It's so far beyond his reach. He knows he exists, but he's so far removed. And in the midst of this painting, there's the church that holds a prominent place in the painting, just like it held a prominent place in his life. And yet in the church, all the windows are dark. There's no light. There's no hope. There's no love. There's no warmth. And what he longed for, what he knew existed, what he knew that there was this God of love and hope and warmth was so far out there, and the ones who could deliver it didn't. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, my church, my, my gathering, my followers, you are to be the hands and feet of Christ. You are to be the light of the world, that this world would look to you and see there is hope, there is love, there is warmth, there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is mercy, there is a God who is good and not be this prominent church that is distant and cold and out there. I believe that Jesus wants the church to hold a prominent place in our community and in our world. But that prominent place is not in military prominence. History will show how horrible that has been when the church has hold, held the military power. And that prominent place, I believe, is not in the political realm. History will show that that is not the most effective way to advance the kingdom of God. You cannot legislate righteousness. It's not about power, it's not about finances. That this church of Jesus Christ would be prominent with the prominence of hope. That there would be hope for people who are desperate and lost and, and longing. Jesus comes along and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we say, well, that seems so exclusive. Look at what good news it is. When you're lost and there is someone who's the way, that is the best thing that could ever happen to you. In a world filled with falsehood and lies, to know that there's a true, true north that you can build your life on. And that there is a life for those of us who are dead in our sins. 
And Jesus comes along and says, I am that way, I am that truth, I am that life. This is the hope, this is the message of reconciliation, this is what will redeem the world, and we as the church ought to be all about pointing people the way to Jesus, speaking the truth of Jesus, and offering the life from Jesus, and be the church that he's called us to be. Now listen, I will tell you this. People say, what was most impactful for you on the Camino? And they're, oh, it, it just, it's countless, the things. And this might seem so simplistic to you. But the thing I walked away with, as a reminder, having, having just gone through 25 years as senior pastor here, having just passed that 55 mark, having just experienced all of this church history, the, the conviction that gripped me coming back from all of that was this. For the rest of my life, for the rest of my ministry, whether that's 10 years or 15 years or one month or whatever it be, this is what I want my ministry and my life to be about, is to point people to Jesus. Because in the grand scope of things, that's the only thing that makes a difference and that's the only thing that will last. I want us to point people to Jesus. I want... What's our church's mission statement? To glorify God by altering the spiritual landscape one life at a time through Jesus. And sometimes that one life is ours. As we continue to grow, as we surrender, as we submit, as we mature, as we get discipled, as we're in small groups, as we're helping others, and sometimes that one life is the couple next door, it's the person we work with, it's the teammate, it's the roommate, it's the friend that we have, but it's to point people to Jesus again and again. That is the way of the church. That has always been the way of the church, and that must be the way of this church. It's about Jesus. We'll get into more of that next week. Get a little excited about that one. Here's the good news. is that it's not just something we dig deep and muster up on our own. Something we just somehow have to fabricate. I love when Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and he writes out his prayer for them. And he says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. This isn't just us not just trying harder, digging deeper. It's his power at work in us. It's the treasure in a jar of clay. Why do you think for the last year we have put such an emphasis and a priority on prayer? Because we recognize that is where we connect with God. That is where he releases his power at work within us. And then Paul goes on and says, now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And I thought back to Sally's words, maybe it's okay sometimes for a church to die. And I began to think, you know, there might be seasons where God says, I'm going to use you especially for such a time as this. But even when Jesus talked to the churches in Revelation, it was not him saying, hey, I'm done with you now because your season has come to a close. It was their doing And I'm not convinced that Jesus ever wants any part of his church to die. Because we are called to bring God glory in the church in all generations, forever and ever. I mean, Spain, Spain as a country, was at one time this prolific, dominant epicenter of Christianity and the church. It was it. And today, Christianity has all but died out in Spain. The evangelical church barely exists, and even the Catholic church is barely holding on in Spain. 
Now, we can point and say, what a secular country, and oh, they're lost, they're beautiful, but they're lost. Forget Spain and even forget America. What I want us to focus on right now is what about this church in this generation? Because we aren't going to answer for any other generation. We're only going to answer for ourselves. And how is it that we can make sure that the church stays alive and vibrant and glorifying God in our generation? And then how can we pass that baton on to the next? Why do you think we put so much emphasis on our children's ministry around here with the Explorers League? Why do you think we put so much emphasis on our student ministry with the Edge and with Encounter? Why do you think? Because we want that next generation to take it forever and ever and to glorify God in this church, in this generation, in the next generation. I think it's with a broken heart that Jesus said these words. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find the church? Will he find a monument, a museum, a tourist site, a monument to a movement that used to happen? Or will he find a monumental movement happening. See, my desire as our pastor and our other pastors and our elders and our leadership is that we would be the church that Jesus has died for, called us to be, created us to be, breathed the vision into, given his Holy Spirit for. And you guys can all say, yeah, you, you better do that, leaders. And we're going to do our best. But can I bring it home to us as individual followers of Christ? Because think, what is the church? It's us. And that church in Gwendolyn, how did that happen? Was it one catastrophic event? Was it a church split? Was it an army or war? Maybe, maybe. Maybe you can point to one priest. Maybe you can point to one season, one war, one split. We don't know. But I think more often than not, when it comes to the church, that the fire dims, and the light diminishes, and the body of Christ dies one cell at a time. One pastor gets his eye off the right, right path. One family decides they don't need to be a part of the church anymore. One follower thinks they can do it on their own. One group thinks that they don't need to hold to the word of God anymore. And it just slowly starts dying. So let me put this on each of us as Christ followers. What are we doing? What am I doing? What are you doing? To keep the life of Jesus Christ alive, the fires and the passion of God burning brightly in your own life. Let me remind you of these words. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. He called our name and we ran out of that grave. It's by grace we are saved. He said, you were dead and I made you alive. Don't go back into the grave to keep this life in your own walk. Rob Worm, who's chairman of our board, has some guys that he's accountable with and they call each other every week. They live up in Alaska. And there's a question that they ask each other every single week. What's fresh? What's God doing in your life now? Where is he leading you today? Not what did he do last year. Not what was going on in the 90s. Not what was, you know, in the Jesus people movement of the 70s. What is God doing today? What's fresh? 
And I, I'm not trying to heap guilt on you, but I just wonder if someone who loved you, that you respected, that you cared about and you knew they cared about you, were to ask you this question, hey, what's God doing fresh in your life right now? Would you have an answer? Would you be able to say, this is what he's been whispering to me. This is where I've been learning. This is what I've been growing. This is where he's redeeming me. This is where he's transforming me. See, maybe that's a good question for us to ask. Because the last thing I want for me and the last thing I want for you and the last thing I want for us is that we would have a reputation of being alive. But here Jesus said, you're dead. That we would be the church that he called to life. It's one of my thoughts from the Camino. I'll give you a few more. Not today. That's it for today.